Good evening, everyone. This is Lee, the appraiser from Amazing Appraising from the world-famous APR 57 Gallery here in New York City. First of all, let's just say hello to everyone. We haven't talked to you in a week or so. And welcome back to our show. We're getting a lot of comments, emails, um, texts, and phone calls about uh, our show and about questions and about how most people find it entertaining and um, informative. And today we're going to be talking uh, about a couple different things. And I want to start off by saying we had a couple people come in this week. I don't know if everyone's aware of it, but the collectible market is booming. Baseball cards are booming. Everything in, I mean, Michael Jordan items are going crazy. So we're getting a lot of requests for appraising and buying these type of items. And some people are looking to sell them. So we want to talk about a couple things today. One is how to authenticate, verify, and appraise some memorabilia. Specifically, we're going to be talking about baseballs today. So what I have here is a 1953 Brooklyn Dodgers signed baseball. One can see that it says here, right on the cover, it says Official National League, Major League Baseball. This one was done by, printed by Spaldines, the company here. This is called the actual sweet spot of the baseball. That means it's in the middle where here you have the imprint of the Major League Baseball and a copy of a facsimile of the uh, commissioner's signature. But the other open spot on the ball is called the sweet spot. And that one is signed by typically either the best player on the team, the star, or in this case, the manager, who was the general of the team. And this was Chuck Dressen who signed it. The ball has some, what we call, it's a little shiny. So it's slightly what they call shellac, which protects the signatures. It was probably blue, but it faded to slightly green. And they're all consistent. They're all quite good condition. Um, just to throw some names here, we have Pee Wee Reese here. We have, of course, Jackie Robinson, Roy Campanella, who was their great catcher, who was uh, paralyzed in a car accident, Carl Erskine, mm -hmm. all the great players. Gil Hodgers, who went on to be the Mets manager in 1969, brought him to the, managed him to the World Series. So we have all the great players of the team here, uh, Duke Snyder, Billy Cock, Carl Ferrillo, all of them. So one of the ways today we're going to be talking about is how to determine if the signatures are genuine, and if they are genuine, then what year, figure out when it was signed. We look for a couple different things when I evaluate this one, obviously, as I've been doing this for 35 years, so I'm pretty experienced in the way the signatures look. So you wanna look at the proper flow of the signature. They're obviously different, meaning that they don't appear to be done by the same person. Typically, they were done with the same pen, because if the ball is handed around to different players, the players are not going to be accustomed to having a pen in their pocket when they're playing baseball. So it would be handed around typically with a pen and the ball. So experience will tell me what to look for in the signature, the way they cross their T's and dot their I's, right? The flow of the signature. You know, I, I always like to equate it with when you were a kid and you were supposed to copy something, whether whatever it was, if you're supposed to copy something, think about it what you did was you would take your pen and if you were tracing something or writing it you would do it in a very very slow motion so it would be done slow you would typically not see the complete flow you would see jagged marks while you're signing it so you want to look for a complete flow meaning that it wasn't done in a slow straight fashion where you'll see sort of jagged uh, uh, drawings on it. That's that's what I typically look for. You compare the signatures. Now, what you have to be careful with some of the baseballs is you have to remember if somebody 
asked for a ball to be signed by the Yankee team. And even if the owner of the team said here, uh, he told the, b the ball boy before the game, he said, Joey, do me a favor, uh, get this ball signed by the team, I'm giving it to a friend of mine in the business, a good friend of mine, he wants to give it to his kid. So if in fact he did that, the problem was, here you have Mickey Mantle in the batting cage or in center field. That little ball boy, Joey, who at that time maybe might have been 15 or 18 years old, is not going to bother Mickey Mantle to have him sign it. So what he did was, he may have most of the other players signed it, but the superstars, the Joe DiMaggio, the Mickey Mantle, the Whitey Fords, those guys are not going to want to be disturbed, and the bull boy doesn't want to disturb him. So what he did was, when he has a lot of time on his hands, he would practice their signatures. The term of that is called clubhouse balls, and those signatures are done typically by the bull boy. Now, not all of them, but typically it's just the stars. So the other players would sign it as he would have no problem asking them. The bull boy just would not request to ask them so that went from there now this ball purportedly was done in 1953 how do we determine what year how do we figure out what year this ball was signed we're going to take a short break and we're going to be right back and i'll continue on that subject did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin Mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sport and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek, Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Breguet, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Buccellati, Von Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They'll also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800-772-0054. Okay, we're back here talking about how to appraise a baseball that's about 70 years old and how to determine what year it was done and what players are on the team when it was done. So to determine the year, you have to go with the understanding that every year, typically, there's about 30 players on the team, on the roster. You have managers and coaches. Some of them sign, some of them don't, but the players typically sign. The way you figure out the year is the first thing you do is I would look for the sweet spot. So the sweet spot in most cases is going to have the manager's signature on it, in this case, Chuck Dressen. So in this case, you can go and say, okay, you can look up and see when Chuck Dressen was the manager of the team, in this case, the Brooklyn Dodgers. He was the manager of the team from 1951 to 53. So now you know that it is from one of those three years. Now, secondly, what we want to do is we want to look at the ball. We look at a couple players and you see when they played. Dressen managed from 51 to 53. So the simplest thing to do is you look on the, the signatures and then you see what player may have been on the roster then and what player may have been on the roster a certain year and he's not on the ball. Basically what you want to do is you want to look at the ball and you want to say what player was on the team say in 52 that wasn't on 53 and what player was on the ball in 53 that may have been not on 54. So then you could then verify that the ball was actually signed in 53. So after looking at this closely, we found out that there's a pitcher by the name of Joe Lundgren 
who was on the team, he pitched on the team in 1950 and 1952, and he is conspicuously missing on this ball. So you know that if he's not on the ball, it couldn't have been 50 or 52. So it had to be a different year. In 54, there was a player by the name of Don Hoke, and he's not on the ball either. Based on that, since neither of those two players are on it, the only rational opinion now is that it was 53 because that was the only year that Dressen was the manager of which neither of those two players were on it. So we came to the conclusion it's a 53 Brooklyn Dodger team signed ball with many of the great signatures. I'll just go over them here. Included is Jackie Robinson, Duke Snyder, Pee Wee Reese, of course the manager Chuck Dressen, Joe Black, Billy Cox, Walter Bellardi, Rube Walker, Bobby Morgan, Ben Wade, Clen Labine, Preacher Rowe, Gil Hodges, Roy Campanella, Jim Hughes, Carl Erskine, Bob Gilliam, Carl Farillo, George Shuba, Walter Giles, who was the president of the NL, his signature is imprinted there, Billy Lowe's, Don Thompson, and Russ Meyer, along with several others. So you have a combination close to about uh, 30 signatures on this ball, and we would estimate the value to be in what we would call very fine condition to be between three and $5,000. This is two years before they won the championship. There was a ball player by the name of Don Hoke. He was on the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1954. He was a tough ball player and he shared third base with Jackie Robinson and Billy Cox. And in 1955, the Dodgers won their very first world championship against the New York Yankees in seven games. He played third base in the seventh game of the World Series. And that's the only time that Jackie Robinson did not play in his career when his team was in the World Series. So Hope, after that season, he was traded, I think, to the Chicago Cubs. And he went on to have a, uh, a decent career in 1957, he was leading the league in hitting and uh, was averaging, uh, he was batting over 400 for the first part of the season. Um, I did not know a lot about him, but an interesting story, what happened was about 20 years ago, so I guess about in 2000 or so, a uh, woman came into my store to uh, have us appraise and sell us some jewelry. And her name was, I believe it was Jill Coria, an older woman, but extremely attractive young lady. She looked like a former Miss USA. And it turns <laughs> out, she tells me, that she was one of the very first musketeers as a very young girl. And she went on to be a successful uh, actress, a model. And uh, she's telling me the story that she was the wife and widow of this baseball player who was on the Brooklyn Dodgers. I said, who? And she said, Don Hoke. And she tells me this story about him, which was just amazing. So they got married, I think it was in 1961, she said. Then Hope went on to play in a couple other teams. And then when he retired about 1965 or so, he became a broadcaster for the very prominent organization, the Pittsburgh Pirates, who had a manager by the name of Danny Murtaugh. He helped them win a World Series, 61 or so, I think is when they won the World Series. They actually beat the Brooklyn Dodgers, I think it was in 55. They won the 60 World Series with Bill Mazeroski's most famous home run 
in Game 7. Murto was their manager for several years, and he resigned after the 67 season, primarily because of medical reasons. He was very sick, mm -hmm. and he subsequently later, when he came back, he uh, managed into a World Series in 71 as well, with Stargell and Manny Sanguin. The story goes that when he, resi when he resigned in 67 for medical reasons, Don Hoke thought he was going to be the next manager, and he was almost assured they called him, they told him he was going to be the manager. They were just waiting for clearance and everything like that. And what happened was they basically told him, again, that he was going to be the uh, takeover as a new manager for the team. What happened was the last minute, um, Murta called back and said he wanted to remanage the team. So Don Hope was basically heartbroken. He was driving in his car when he heard the news on the radio reportedly that they have rehired Danny Murtaugh and it, mm -hmm. he lost his position. He basically had a heart attack in the car, caused him to die. His wife claims that he died primarily of a broken heart, that that was his goal. And that is what his wife, Jill, told us in person. It was like a crazy story. That's just a little-known fact of mm -hmm. his ex-Brooklyn Dodger, who was a great player in his own right, and basically died of a broken heart by having his goal of being a manager of the Pittsburgh Pirates taken away from him. I just wanted to share that story. We'll be right back in just a minute. Did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin Mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sport and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek, Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Breguet, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Buccellati, Von Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They'll also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800-772-0054. Lee, the appraiser, back here, talking from Amazing Appraising APR 57 Gallery here. In another episode of What's Hot and What's Not, sports memorabilia, baseball cards, right up on the very, very top of the list. A lot of collectors collect anything with memorabilia. Some of them collect specifically items, for example, jerseys and uniforms that are signed or game-worn. Some of these jerseys have fetched over a million dollars, Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig specifically, yeah. and they have a thing which is called photo matching now so the question is if somebody comes in here and shows us a jersey and they say here I got this from Babe Ruth he told me he wore it during the 1933 season it might get you know it's unlikely that they got it directly from him but they might say their father or grandfather got it so the question is how do we authenticate this today you know what I mean it's nice for them to say that but you know if we're looking to buy or appraise that or sell it to another collector, we have to have proof that, in fact, what they say is 100% accurate. In today's world, they have a thing that, of course, that you can authenticate in somewhat the jersey, but more specifically, if it's game-worn, they are able to, with the advent of research and the Internet and videos, 
they can actually substantiate whether the jersey was actually game worn, mm -hmm. meaning there was a situation, and there, I, they actually do have some dispute. Jason Pierre Paul, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, the ex giant who blew off his fingers in a firecracker accident a couple of years ago, he was the one that was involved in this where. He has a jersey of his hanging in his house, and somebody else claims, hey, wait a second, that's not the jersey you won in the Super Bowl. I have the jersey you won in the Super Bowl, and that guy is claiming that I think he had it authenticated by one of these grading services, and they, the way they were able to authenticate it is that they see certain stains on the jersey that they showed him, and they match the stains of the jersey that he wore in the Super Bowl, meaning that when they take close-ups of the jersey in the fourth quarter of the Super Bowl, they had the exact same markings and tags that appeared during the Super Bowl. So if there was a smudge, for example, on the lower right corner of his number, let's just say his number was 78, so on the lower right corner of the eight, there is a scratch there, there's a, uh, a dirt stain right there. That is one way that they can match it. If there was a stretch or a tear on the top left, they can do that as well. So they're actually um, uh, validating and certifying these jerseys now with what you would call, uh, I guess the best way to equate it would be like FBI um, <laughs> DNA uh, evidence that these were in fact the items that were worn purportedly during that game. So, and they can do that also, it's more difficult with old time uniforms in baseball because mm -hmm. of the fact you don't have the video footage and all the photographs at that time that are available to make the clear, complete connections as you do today. But um, just keep that in mind. So if anyone has, by the way, any baseballs that they want verified, authenticated, or appraised, any uniforms or other sports memorabilia, they want to have verified, authenticated, and appraised, please contact us, and we'll be happy to do that for you and give you an appraisal, a certification, evaluation, authenticity, and most importantly, a very high cash offer. In, in fact, you want to sell it or if you just need an insurance appraisal to have it insured and protected with your current policies. So if you guys have any additional questions about these type of things, please let us know and we'll be happy to respond immediately and call us. Maybe even we'll take a call during the show for you if you'd like. Okay, we'll be right back with another message from our sponsors. Did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin, mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sports and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Brigitte, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Bucciolati, Van Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. That's 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800-772-00. So when we started handling watches and jewelry, which was about 1985, about 35 years ago probably, I was actually forced to get 
into the watch business based on the fact that we were dealing in stamps and coins. And we had a couple of states that came our way of which had some jewelry and watches in them, of which the owners did not want to sell just the coins, but they wanted to make sure that they sold the entire estate with the watches and jewelry. So over a very short and pressured period of time, I had to learn the value of these items to be able to buy and sell them accurately and to make sure that if I was spending 10, 20, 30,000 dollars on a group of some of these watches and jewelry with the coins, that I would have a place to resell them to hopefully in my lifetime. So uh, long story short is I started to read about and learned about the watches and uh, we started dealing in uh, the better watches in fact, when we opened up our first gallery and store about 1987 on 57th Street and 6th Avenue, we put all the jewelry and watches where we had some extra space in the window, and that is really what everyone asked for. Not for the cheaper watches, but for the better ones. Predominantly, they would say, do you have any Rolex or Patti Philippe watches? So we started to, you know, get some on consignment and sell them and do trade-ins, and we learned the uh, the watch business fairly, caref- uh, fairly quickly. So anyhow, so just let me first tell you what the facts are. So the facts are Rolex watches are amongst the most demand, in-demand items and most in-demand wristwatches in the world. Patek Philippe is up there as well, and so is uh, Audemars Piguet and Vacheron. But Rolex has a certain cachet to them where even the person that's not familiar with the high-end Patek Philippe or Vacheron will at least have heard the name Rolex and the demand has really soared um, over the years. And to be honest, particularly in the last six months, I would say during this pandemic, a lot of the prices have gone up anywhere from 20 to 60% in value. It's really been astonishing that uh, you would think when people do not have that much money available, they would not necessarily go out and spend it on better watches. But I think what has happened is the people that have not spent and stayed home or uh, have not bought a lot of luxury items have decided that they wanted the best. And the best universally is a Rolex or Patek Philippe. So that is what they decided to spend their money on. I'm just going to give you a little facts about the watches. So their watches, the first time I saw them, I remember as a youngster, they were not what you would call extremely attractive. There's a lot of other watches that I think at first glance are more attractive. And uh, the main reason I think that they are collected is, well, there are one of the oldest brands, but there's another brand, there's a lot of brands that are old. That's not really the key factor. The key factor to me is what I understand it to be is that they are extremely durable. The movements and cases are made very well, not necessarily the bracelets. The bracelets tend to wear and get loose and uh, sort of get run down over the years. But I think the two major factors that make them collectible are the fact that the case and movements themselves are extremely strong and can take a huge, huge beating, uh, considerably more than the average watch. I mean, we've had clients that have worn their watches on their wrist for over 20 years without ever taking them off over 20 years. For every activity, sleeping, swimming, sports, everything, fishing, and they've never taken the watch off their wrist. So I think the durability is one key factor. I think the other key factor is that they're made in such a way that all the parts can be replaced typically. So if you have a watch that even has not been taken off your wrist for 20 years, you've worn it 20 years every day for 365 days a year straight, and even though it has a lot of wear, a lot of usage, that theoretically you can take that watch into a 
dealer or to the company and they will factory service and clean it and replace every part that's necessary to make the watch appear and function absolutely as a brand new watch. So I think those are the two major reasons why the watches have become such in demand and such collectible items. Now, of course, there's other factors involved. Another one is the fact that in like cars, every couple years typically, sometimes every 10 years, they will make changes to the model of that specific watch. They will make changes to perhaps the size of the case, the movement slightly, the dial slightly, all these little factors which will make it a different model. So hence you have collectors that perhaps will want the model from the 1970s, the next model from the 80s, the next model from the 90s, and so forth. So you have people that will collect like a Rolex Submariner, different varieties. That's their diving watch. They were known to make the first sport diving watch officially. I think they did it in the early 1950s. Sean Connery as James Bond used that as his watch of choice in the late or early 60s on, and then Roger Moore, uh, he passed the baton over to Roger Moore who wear it further down the line. So these watches tend to possess those qualities that I think make them very, very desirable and very collectible. You can pick up all these different varieties, so collectors love them for that regard. And in addition, it's one of the few collectibles in the world that where men can actually wear and show it off and enjoy it all the time. I mean, if you have a rare stamp or rare coin, you're going to keep it in the, in the bank vault. Wear a watch, if you have the proper insurance, you could wear it all the time and basically basically show it off, keep it even understated. That's what I think a lot of men do, and I think that's the, one of the few things that they enjoy doing about their watch collection is wearing them from, you know, individual items from time to time or possibly consistently. They enjoy doing that, and they have shown a great, great appreciation over time. In fact, I think about 15 years ago, we actually appraised the original James Bond watch that Roger Moore wear, and we appraised that one for one. million. That was the original watch that was worn in that film. So that is, I think, the reason. And as, of course, as I've handled them over the years, I have learned to appreciate them. So even though initially they weren't attractive to me from day one, I have learned that based on these characteristics that make them so much in demand, they are considered to be really the watch of choice amongst most collectors. I mean, we have a lot of collectors that collect various styles and... um, designs of their watches. In fact, we had somebody come in a couple weeks ago purportedly with one of six of their unique, it's called Clausene, hand-painted multicolor dials. You know, has an estimated value of as high as uh, three, dollars $400,000. People, you know, we, we're in the process of uh, discussing the sale with that one, one of our major collectors. If you have any of these watches that you want to have appraised or evaluated, repaired, or sold, please contact us directly, and we will be happy to review it and give you a nice appraisal and a nice cash offer. Okay, we're going to stop now and just take another short break. We'll be right back. Did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin, mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sports and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Brigitte, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even 
even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Bucciolati, Van Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. That's 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800-772-0054. This is Lee the Appraiser. We're back for another segment of Amazing Appraising. Uh, we're just talking about some very unusual things that have come in recently in our gallery here. This is a catalog from one of the auction houses. It is a collection of items from the largest or one of the largest collections of Muhammad Ali memorabilia ever put together. It was called the Polliger Collection of Muhammad Ali memorabilia. It was sold at auction in California in 1997 which would make it, I guess, 25 years old, right? Just about. Mm -hmm. So uh, this has some of the coolest things, of which we have some of these things here. This is, I've had this poster before. This is a poster that was of the main event, World Championship fight, Joe Frazier against Muhammad Ali at Madison Square Garden. This is fight number two. You had to go to Madison Square Garden to see it at that time. There was no cable TV, I don't believe, at that time. This poster today is worth probably a couple thousand dollars in perfect condition. Very few of these, again, when we deal with items, memorabilia, whether it's sports or jewelry or watches or coins, we have to figure out, we estimate how many were made, how many were kept, how many are left around today, and of course, the condition on the ones that are still existing. So this was at a time in, uh, I guess this had to be about probably uh, 1974, 75. This had to be the time when nobody kept these posters. There was no real interest collectible, so to have one of these to keep them, hardly any of them were saved. So, um, so that's actually very cool. So that's something to remember. So when you talk about posters and items, if you have them for sale or you have them, you own them. Okay, now everyone, let's just say when Ali fought years ago, if, if it was done on a specific thing, uh, you know, if it was a big fight, they would technically keep, more people would have kept it. Mm -hmm. If it was a program, okay, more people of this special fight would have kept it, whereas if it was a very obscure fight, less people kept it. But this is not a program, this is actually a poster. So very few people, there were a limited number of these. This was made just for Madison Square Garden. So how many did they order to put for the garden? Maybe a hundred pieces. The garden is the mecca for sports in the United States and in New York City, indoor arena. So let's just say they made a hundred of these for the garden. I don't know, 200, 100. It was for one night, right? So they would use it as a poster to put it, you know, advertising around the garden. So even if they made a couple hundred of them, nobody had access to them and nobody kept them and they were very, very, very scarce. Okay, these are the fight shoes, uh, his, Muhammad Ali's fight shoes that he wore when he fought Ken Norton. I think that bout, that bout was in, um, I believe it was in Yankee Stadium, I believe. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm gonna tell you a story here. When I just started collecting in my business, when I was a little kid, when I was a kid, I'm in my early 20s, I went to an auction it was run by a company called Guernsey's, which is, a, they're still around today. They're a small auction house on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And they're very, very unique in the way they do business. Typically, you'll have auction houses 
that will specialize in a particular a particular field, mm -hmm. whether it's art or rare coins or jewelry or sports cars. Cars. Cars, whatever it might be. They specialize in just that. They have people on staff that handle it and specialize it, and that's what their expertise is. And they get a reputation for that, uh, for the, that expertise. Mm -hmm. So people will buy these items for their collection, and down the road they will sell them typically through them when they want to dispose of their collection. Mm. So Guernsey's is the most unique auction house probably in the world. What they do is they specialize in just the opposite. They specialize, if you can believe it, in auctioning off collection or specific items that are totally obscured to anything else, meaning that the person that put together the largest collection of Titanic memorabilia they will auction just that collection of Titanic memorabilia. And they put together a collection, and they, so they have collections of, they did a collection, I think, on um, like Jackie Onassis yeah. or stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Like specific one owner, unique things. So like a whole array of different subject, you know, but items, but one subject matter. So this is crazy because I don't even know where it is. You know, we have storage places. Yeah. But when I was a kid, I had a lot of guts. And I went, they had an auction by Muhammad Ali's manager. His name was Bandini Brown. And when Bandini Brown died, Guernsey's ran an auction. And I was a little kid, and I bought everything there I could afford. And that stuff today must be worth a fortune. I don't know where it is. It's in one of our storage facilities. I just remember Bandini Brown was unusual in the fact that I think he was originally um, Muslim. And I think, I don't know if it's, if he converted to Judaism, but in this collection, he had a lot of Jewish books. He had like the, you know, the Passover book, the Haggadah, it's called for the Passover mm -hmm. Seder. He had a lot of very cool things and religious artifacts. There were a lot of pictures of Ali's wives and girlfriends, like crazy unique things that I hope, to, I hope, I hope we still have it somewhere. I'm hoping I do, I have it in storage somewhere. I'm hoping we have a lot of unique photographs so that was one of the craziest things I bought over the years. It, and for me, it was a tremendous amount of money. I don't remember what I spent on the whole thing. Maybe it was $20,000 on the whole thing. I didn't buy everything, of course, but I bought a lot of very, very unusual memorabilia all relating. It was Bandini Brown's personal collection. Wow. Uh, he, he represented Muhammad Ali as his uh, manager over the years. Um, I'm pretty sure this is him in this photograph, I think so. Were kids allowed to go to boxing matches not in the day, back in the day? Well, they could, I think. But, you know. But uh, who would go? I mean, yeah. They, you know, gonna, they don't have, uh, you know, kids under three or five or <laughs> yeah, anything no. like that. So the, 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 it was very expensive still yeah. to get a front row seat. So, you know, you're not going to stick your kid in the back. Daddy, yeah. I can't see anything, <laughs> you know. Shut up. Well, it's $20. You know, so, but whatever. This is actually here. This is the original cash, a Sunny Liston ticket for one of the most famous fights in history. Mm. That's an original unused ticket. It was 20 bucks for a ringside seat in 1964, and it was estimated uh, it sold for about uh, probably $6,000. Anyhow, so I actually, re oh, I, I know somebody, or I knew somebody, I've been in touch with him recently. He was a very clever guy, and you know what he would do? He would buy, he would get his hands on all these tickets for rare events, especially baseball games. So he would go to a game, and after the game, if there was something special that happened there, like a guy pitched a no-hitter, that means nobody got a hit. Uh. If a guy hit four home runs, the, you know, so it was an event, 
that people would want to have saved their tickets from. Mm -hmm. He would then, at the end of the game, he would go to the box office or the following day, and he would buy all their unused tickets yeah. for virtually nothing because they had yeah. no use. And then he would hold on to them and resell them down the road as, you know, no one Ryan's no-hitter game. Wow. Very clever, right? People, Brilliant. People come up with yeah. very, very cool ideas. So Anyhow, so remember, guys, if you have anything interesting, coins, stamps, jewelry, watches, art, antiques, paintings, furniture, anything that you think may be interesting, it doesn't have to be necessarily valuable, but it has to be rare. If you have something unusual or rare, even if it's personal, your, your grandfather got it. Again, we had a, somebody came in with a picture of him when he was a little boy his uh somebody took of him uh, of uh, joe dimaggio giving out baseballs and bats at a uh, underprivileged event here in 1936 in West lower east side i believe right so anyhow if anybody has anything unique pictures photographs autographs please bring them in remember the more unique the better we'd love to see them appraise them we are going to be right back and we'll be talking to you shortly thank you very much did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin, mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sports and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Brigat, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Bucciolati, Van Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. That's 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800- 054. This is Lee the Appraiser for Amazing Appraising with another small segment of our special Amazing Appraising show. So what I have in front of me here is another thing that somebody just brought in the other day. It is a newspaper magazine. I don't know if you remember the New York Times, the New York Post. They have like magazine sections sometimes on Sunday for the uh, publication. So this is the Parade Magazine out in Santa Barbara, California, and they published a uh, Sunday edition here. And this one was published in August 31st, 1969. That was the year the Miracle Mets won the 1969 World Championship World Series. So that is very cool in itself. So this was a featured article, and he's featured on the cover of the magazine, Parade Magazine, a gorgeous picture of the great Tom Seaver, considered by many the greatest Met player in history. It says here, Tom and Nancy Seaver. He's pictured with a beautiful picture of his wife. And it says here, he pitches for the Mets and her. I don't have the whole article here. I don't. We have just the cover of the magazine, and the cover of the magazine is actually cut out and framed with a beautiful signature across Tom Seaver's uniform, and beautiful in blue Sharpie. I mean, the signature is like perfect, 10 out of 10, and the photograph, this is the things that we'd love to see, and it's just really cool. Unfortunately, Mr. Seaver, Tom, as he's called, passed away past August. I think it was, he was about 76, I guess, when he passed. Fortunately, he had some, I guess it was Alzheimer's or dementia issues and hasn't been basically 
I'm not going to say seen, but he hasn't made any public appearances supposedly in the last several years prior to his passing. This is really, he was considered one of the great pitchers of all time, certainly the greatest Met. Everyone had a nice thing to say about him. To have a unique picture of his, remember, this is not a big page, a paper. It's a relatively small paper. It's about 62 years old, okay? And that right, 31, 41, 51, no, I guess about 52 years old. To have a beautiful color picture on the cover of the magazine, that was featuring the article about him. Um, it's really, it was pretty amazing to have it photographed and to have it signed. You know, I would have to guess there's probably not another one of these signed covers available or out there even. So great rarity, really unusual. This is the type of thing that we are interested in acquiring, purchasing, appraising. So if, you, again, you have any unique Mets memorabilia, we have a number of major collectors, and we're a big collector ourselves. Let us know, and we will appraise it for you, authenticate it for you, evaluate it, and perhaps even buy it from you at a very, very high price. So that's just another set of memorabilia of things that we have here. Just to go back a little, when we had the New York Nick piece, that we have a album here from the New York Knicks. I'm holding up here. This was done in, let's pull this out, guys. It's called the New York Knicks play-by-play highlights of the 1969-70 championship season. It has a photograph of the entire team with Red Holtzman there in the middle and see what the record it looks like. It's produced by Fleetwood Records. It's in the cover sleeve. I mean, it's like an absolutely brand new condition here. Now, these are not that, I, I mean, I'm not going to say they're not that rare. They're probably rare, but they're not that valuable. So, but in the meantime here, we have a famous, very young Marv Albert, who's the radio voice of the Nick. Wow, looks like his bar mitzvah picture. I guess he was about 23 at that time. Oh, and the photography of the album was done by George Kalinske, who was considered one of the great photographers of Madison Square Garden. And then we have Marty Glickman, who was known also as a great voice of the Knicks. I'm quite sure Marty was the announcer of the New York Giants for many years. We have William Red Holtzman. He was the coach and general manager of the Knicks for a number of years. We have Bob Wolf voice of the Knicks. I remember him. Wow. These bring back a lot of memories. They were considered the team that the first, this was the first championship team that everybody passed the ball. They always hit the open man. That was known as one of their great, great feats is that they were the most unselfish team in history. And look who was on that team here. Wow. Let's go over the players there. You have Red Holtzman, Phil Jackson standing there, who went on to become one of the greatest coaches in history, winning I think 11 rings. I think he won five with the Bulls and five with the Lakers, I believe. Maybe one more. Probably one more. If it's five and five, it's probably one more mixed in there, 10. Who else we have there? Dave Stallworth, Dave DeBusher, Captain Lewis Reed, Bill Hoskett, Nate Bowman, one of the older star players, Bill Bradley, the chief scout Dick McGuire, and trainer Dan Willman. And then, of course, we had Walt Frazier, and Ned Ivers was chairman of the board, so I guess that's the New York Knicks chairman of the board. Dick Barnett, Mike Reardon, and Cassie Russell. Whoa. Anyhow, so this is a great cast, great team, and this is a record that was done in 1969. It had all the play-by-play of all the great announcers and all the great moments. I remember watching, there was a game that I guess it was, must have been in maybe 73, something like that. I used to watch Cablevision. I grew up at Columbia University, so one of the perks of growing up and living in the university and college based on the fact of my father being a professor was that they were one of the first places that had cable television. So we used to watch cable, and they didn't have all the Nick games. You would have, I think it was like half or a third of the Nick games 
one cable TV. And the way they had did the cable, and the reason it was so difficult in Manhattan was the cables actually went under the ground. They used to dig them. It was a big process. It wasn't today like wow. well, through uh, Verizon Towers. This right. was, they would dig well under the streets, and they'd have to run a cable physically. So very, it was very difficult and very expensive to get it because that's the only way they could do it. They couldn't, yeah. that's, uh, they had to be protected, and they had to be out of the way. And that's what the easiest and most economical way of them doing it initially. And that's what happened. Well, I don't know how... I don't know how huge it was just to get it to them. I mean, they had, on the whole campus, I think this was the only TV that had it. But you had to pay at that time, whatever it was, $38 a month or something. But I just remember they kept repeating this game. I think it was in 73 when the Bucks had the great uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. At that time, he was Lou Alcindor and Oscar Robinson. And who else did they have? They had Bobby Dandridge, Lucius Allen, I guess. Anyhow, so that team was the, the dominant team in basketball that year, and I think they won the championship. And they played the Knicks, and I think one of the games, the Knicks were down by like 22 points in the fourth quarter, and they came back, and that was pretty exciting. And they showed that game, uh, I think Marv Albert, you know, to Busher to Bradley, Bradley to Reed, Reed back to, to Bradley. He shoots from 20. Yes! That was the way Mark Al Marv Albert trademarked his calling. Anyhow, so that's pretty cool. So we're talking about the record here, which again, in itself is not that rare, but the fact that they didn't, you know, the people didn't save too many records, it does have immense interest and it does have some value. And what we are holding here now, we have a New York Knickerbockers. That was the, the Knicks are actually called, their full name are the Knickerbockers. This is a program that means it's from the game against the Boston Celtics. Look at that. And look at the second teams that played there. Andrews Air versus Camp Kilmer. Whoa, that must have been a huge draw. Anyhow, this was done on November 20th, 1954 in Madison Square Garden. They have a picture of Ed McCauley of the Boston Celtics, and they charged 25 cents for this original program. So what we have here is an original program in virtually mint condition from the 1954 game between the Knickerbockers and the Boston Celtics. You got that clear there? Yeah. So that's 54. So that's 46, 56, 66, 67 years old. The price, if you know this blue, yeah. is only 25 cents. It was actually, it says here, on sale for 24 cents plus a penny tax. So 25 cents. And as you would enter the garden you'd hear an old man screaming get your program here new york knickerbockers for celtics get your program here only 24 cents 25 cents total okay really amazing thing so again we love these old programs if you have any old programs of knicks or yankees or mets filled in or not any condition of course the better condition the, the better but we will buy them in any condition and uh, this one's in brand new condition i think we paid several hundred dollars for it so if you have any of these things that are laying around your house maybe your kids moved out and they left you all these goodies they thought it was garbage but you don't tell them just bring them to us and cash in the benefits Okay, and we uh, will help you appraise them and evaluate them. And again, the more unique, the better. And we'd love to hear from you soon. So if you have any of these artifacts of old collectibles that you might think are not worth very much, we just bought a, a Muhammad Ali card. We paid like 10 grand for it from the 80s. You know, not too many boxing cards, early ones were out there, but we bought this one. We just bought a Will Chamberlain rookie card, a Kareem Abdul, a Lou Alcindor rookie card. Again, with the cards, by the way, what you're looking for is ideally... The way they're collectible, the way they're collected are as follows. You're going to want a card of a 
superstar player those are considered in general the most valuable in addition to the uh, the player so let's just say for example it's Lou Alcindor or Kareem Abdul-Jabbar the same person different name for people who don't know he went through high school he was uh, under Lou Alcindor and then I believe his second year in the league or third year he changed his name he became a Muslim and he changed it to Kareem Abdul Jabbar and okay and he became a Muslim what you want is a superstar player you want their first card that was issued for them typically it's a rookie card that means their first season in the major leagues whether it's baseball football basketball or hockey in fact today uh, some of the players actually have if they're great prospects their first card is actually a pre-rookie card meaning it's a card of them in the minor leagues they never used to do that but certain players are so great, they've had early cards issued for them, okay? So we want a rookie card, we want a star player. The star player, generally, if it's an older player, somebody that has established themselves as a great star player, not just currently, but previously. So somebody, for example, in baseball, we typically use that as a Hall of Fame category, that they've entered the Hall of Fame. That's the general and specific criteria that is generally used that you makes you a great player, that you're a Hall of Famer, and then, of course, the condition. So that's what you would like. You'd like a star, superstar, Hall of Fame player or caliber player. You want a card that's their first rookie card, their first year card, and then you want it to be in perfect condition or as close to it as possible. So those are the characteristics that you look for when you collect cards, and those are the cards that bring the most money and that we are the most interested in seeing and talking and seeing and appraising. So if you have any, please bring it in. We will be happy to answer any of your questions. We are going to, again, take a very short break, and we'll be right back. Did you know gold and silver prices are at an all-time high? If you have any gold, silver, or platinum coins, bullion, Franklin, mint items, diamonds, jewelry, art, antiques, paintings, French furniture, any Tiffany items, sterling flatware, Judaica, oriental rugs, older baseball cards, sports and entertainment memorabilia, watches, especially better watches such as Rolex, Patek Philippe, Vacheron, Tiffany, IWC, Cartier, Brigat, Omega, Breitling, Bulgari, just to name a few. APR 57 Gallery will buy them all at the highest cash prices in any condition, even broken. APR 57 Gallery also needs any designer jewelry such as Cartier, Tiffany, Bucciolati, Van Cleef, Harry Winston, and Bulgari. Now is the time to cash out at the world-famous APR 57 Gallery on 57th Street in New York City across from Carnegie Hall. They also come to your home and do certified insurance appraisals. So if you have anything of value, call them for a free appraisal and high cash offer at 212-246-2000. That's 212-246-2000 or toll-free 1-800-772-00 Hey everyone, this is Lee the Appraiser back for another segment of Amazing Appraising. We are going to be talking about some watches, so hence we are going to be calling this segment Watch Talk. We actually uh, have sold some watches that actually talk over the last number of years. Primarily, they were sold to people, unfortunately, who don't have vision. They were called Braille watches up until recently. And the way they worked originally was, and these went back to mechanical watches from the 1940s, is that you would push a button on the side of the case, the case would pop open, and then you'd be the hands would be there, and the dial, uh, you'd be able to touch the dial, and the dial would have the numbers where you can feel the numbers, whether it's, you know, one, one button, two button, three, you know, three... 
three little buttons, uh, whatever you want to call them, circles. So a, a person that was unfortunately blind but could feel properly and had good sense in her fingers would be able to tell where the buttons were, where the hands were, the hands in relation to the buttons, and would say it's a quarter to five. Pretty cool. So anyhow, with technology now, they have made watches that actually talk. So simply, you could just push a button and it will say the time right now is 5.45. So that's pretty cool. So based on that, well not based on that, but we are going to have this segment of our show is going to be called Watch Talk. So one of the premier brands in the world is uh, the Rolex watch, the Rolex watch company. It's one of the most protective symbols and trademarks in the world. They have a number of patents and trademarks for their watches. At the top of my head, I think they made the first waterproof watch perhaps about 1930s. I believe they made the first automatic watch also about the 1930s. Um, I bought a watch the other day. It was called the Auto Wrist by Fortis and it was a watch that winds the, you have the case of the watch which is the outer case. Typically it's rectangular around. That's the shape of the metal that holds the movement. That's gonna be called the case. And the outer parts of the case, typically they're two pieces of metal on the top and the bottom. Typically they're about three or four millimeters in length. And they are called the lugs. And they, in some cases, are standard regular lugs. That means standard shape. Other cases, they are very unusual and elaborate, and those are called, obviously, uh, a designer or unusual lugs. They, they're nicknamed sometimes uh, teardrop lugs, where they're in the shape of a teardrop. They could be heavier, pointed, very unusual style, but that would be sort of what gives the watch its difference in character. Typically, the lugs are done when, and if you have lugs or unusual lugs on a watch, you're going to typically wear it with what's called a leather strap or a strap, a material strap, so it's going to show the difference in the contrast between the watch and the lugs and the strap, so it'll it'll show much better. So, why was I saying that? Because Rolex had some trademarks, mm -hmm. right? Oh, so this watch that I had, it appears, the general, the collector who we purchased it from, was claiming that Fortis was the first one to make an automatic watch, and he was claiming that Rolex took over and bought the patent from them. I'm not too sure about that. We were in the process of researching it. We haven't concluded that yet. We started, as I said, we bought the watch uh, about a week ago, so we're still working on that. It's not clear. It looks like Rolex got the first patent, but they may have bought it from this other company, Fortis, which I know as, I believe, the first watch company that made watches for the Russian astronauts and the Russian space program. So you'll look at a lot of the Fortis watches that were made in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and they will state they're the official watchmaker for the Soviet Union or the Russian astronauts. Anyhow, so Rolex has a lot of unusual features. Their watches are the most collectible, with Patek Philippe, the two most collectible brands in the world. Uh, one reason is because they had all these innovations of being the first, the first, the first in doing waterproof, automatic, mechanical, oyster. Uh, their watches were known to be overall extremely durable. They would come up with all these innovations and you would pay a lot of money for them, but as it turns out, collectors would pay even more money for them. In fact, their strategy today is instead of raising prices, they raise demand, which through raising the demand raises prices. A little, little unusual, that's how they operate. So if they have a watch, the retail price is $12,000, they will price it at 12000 retail. Typically, the dealer will make 
as much as a 40% markup as being a Rolex dealer selling their product. So it might cost them, say, seven grand. They're selling it for 12. But what they do is they only give the Rolex retailers a couple pieces a month of this particular model. There's other watches, of course, that are not as popular that they give them more. But as a general rule, they'll only give them a very, very limited supply. So these watches tend to wholesale. That means my dealer cost could be as much as close to the full retail, maybe a 10% discount, maybe the full retail price. But we typically have all the watches available to us immediately if one wants them, which is completely different than the Rolex stores because they're limited by what Rolex supplies them or we can get them from outside markets and sell them at wholesale or our cost. So we're able to supply them considerably faster and more readily than one that would get them directly from the store. Please um, stay tuned for Zeb Brenner on Talkline USA. I hear he has a great show with a number of great guests. And until next week, stay well, stay safe, and have a very nice week. We look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you.